0: part of our teaching team. is going to share with us this morning, also known as, oh, what's her name? Yeah. Okay. I have to find my glasses. Good morning, everybody. <gasps> um, Got to take a minute here. Oh, so uh, Brian has been teasing me and Jenny because when we get up here, we're locked in, right? I mean, A, I don't have to hold my stomach in because the podium's right here, but B, this is a little bit of a buffer between... But look what I did today. It is possible. It might happen, but probably not. Okay, well, as we've heard already this morning, today on the... Oh, I'm Catherine. I'm a member of the teaching team. There's never just one voice up here. We have a a plethora of people who uh, jump in to help in so many ways. Um, teaching team, band, oops, sorry, Andrew, band, uh, leadership team, children's ministries. We're a collective, we're collaborative, we're collegial, and we love that you're here, and we would love if you're not involved for you to get involved in one of, one of those ways. Okay. And good morning, uh, those of you at home. So today on the church calendar... It's Palm Sunday. Uh, In some traditions, it's also called Passion Sunday. A Palm Sunday service tends to emphasize the triumphal entry, the the palms, the the whole shebang of Jesus into Jerusalem. And a Passion Sunday service emphasizes what happened uh, the night Jesus was arrested, his trial, and his crucifixion. I'm going to thread the needle, and I'm going to do something in between both of those. Because we got to hear a great um, Palm Sunday message a few weeks ago when in our Mark series, and if you're visiting us or new to us, we started almost a year ago a series on the Gospel of Mark, going through it. We've broken it up a few times to do other things around holidays and uh, things that were happening in the culture. We will resume the Mark series, the Sunday after Easter. But uh, we've already seen Mark's version of Palm Sunday, and that was Wayne a few weeks ago. And Wayne guided us through the significance of the palms, the donkey, the cloaks on the ground, what the word Hosanna means. It means save us. Uh, Then the following week, we heard from Brian about the, the next major event of Holy Week, which appears in Mark's gospel, is when Jesus went into the temple, he overturned the tables, uh, upset all the money changers, and uh, he also enacted a parable about the uh, fruitlessness of the whole temple system when he cursed the fig tree. And then Wayne came up the the week after that again and he showed us that during this week there were many groups that were confronting Jesus about his authority. Why? Who did he think he was in doing these various things? And that each time one of the groups came to uh, Jesus with a trick question or maybe even a legitimate question, Jesus was able to show these these groups who were who were visible. Um, they were members of the status quo. They had positions of power and authority. And he was able to show them that they were, despite their feelings, not on a clear Torah foundation with what they were saying, or in some cases, not even on a clear logical foundation. And Jesus made them look pretty dumb. And if you read Mark's gospel, he, Jesus really lays into them in that gospel. Okay, so again, because we're going to go, step right back into Holy Week uh, after, the, after Easter, I'm not going to talk about um, Holy Week from the perspective of Mark's gospel. So I'm instead going to use John's gospel because John has some things in his gospel that the other three gospels do not have that uh, happened this week. And I would like to take this moment to remind you of something Brian requested of all of us, is that try to read through one gospel's uh, summary of what happened during Holy Week. Pick one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But I think it will really help, and if you have extra time, read all four. Um, Okay, so now I'm actually officially starting. Have you ever wondered... Why, of all the people groups conquered by the Romans, now think about them, the Romans conquered pretty much all of the Western world other than the Americas, parts of North Africa, parts uh, East. Why, of all the peoples that were conquered by the Romans, were the Jews exempt from mandatory participation in the Roman religious system and exempt from required sacrifices to the Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses. You all stay awake at night, right? <laughs> Worrying about that. Okay. Lots of sleepless nights are now over. I'm going to tell you why this happened. Around 164 B.C., and I'm stepping a little bit on uh, Wayne's toes from a few weeks ago, there was a very powerful and very large and very pious family of Jews uh, in the area around Jerusalem, who led a guerrilla revolt against the reigning empire of their day, which was the Hellenistic Jews. You remember Alexander the Great, who conquered everything. Well, he conquered the area that that Israel is in, and of course, he died shortly thereafter, but his empire remained. And so Israel was under the control of, we would say Greeks, they would call uh, Hellenistic, the later Greeks, their empire. This family, Hasmoneans, this large, pious family, a guerrilla-style... Am I in the wrong spot? (laughs) Led a guerrilla-style revolt against these Greek military leaders. And it was so aggravating, so time-consuming, so money-draining that eventually the Greeks said, okay, we're out. You can rule this area as you wish, because this family wanted the Jews to be able to worship as they pleased. And the Greeks allowed this family to have religious and political uh, sovereignty over the area of Israel, current, modern day Israel. It was more in appearance than reality because the Greeks were still on standby and heavily armed, but it calmed the area. And so the Hasmoneans ruled for many, many years. And then the Romans came in. They conquered the Greeks, so they got all of the Greeks' empire. And the Romans needed a guy loyal to them, so the Hasmoneans were definitely out, not to mention mostly dead. And um, the Romans chose Herod, the same Herod the Great that was ruling when Jesus was born. And they chose Herod in part because he claimed he was Jewish, he was actually part Jewish, and he claimed he was a descendant of the Hasmoneans, and the Romans felt that would most likely be enough to placate the Jews because their king would be both Jewish and from this family. And so the deal struck with Rome was that uh, the Romans would not require mandatory Uh, Roman temple worship from the Jews. The Jews could worship as they always wanted to. Herod got to build a brand new gorgeous temple. And as long as Herod kept the peace, uh, brought in all the taxes, which went to him, the temple, and to the Romans. Actually, Israel, most people lived at poverty level. I think almost, I can't remember the figure. I'm terrible with numbers. More than 50% of what viable income that they had went out to taxes. It was very oppressive. But as long as Herod kept the peace, that there were no revolts, uh, he could rule, and uh, he was going to be able to stay in power for as long as Rome found him useful. So in order for Herod to remain king, he had to walk this fine line. He had to appease Rome, but he also had to appease the Jewish population. If there was unrest in the land, he would be killed, he would be replaced, and uh, the land would be decimated. So Herod and his successors, because he eventually passed away, had to walk a fine line. They had to look loyal to Rome. And so they built cities and buildings dedicated to Roman emperors. Herod made sacrifices to the Roman gods. So you can see why Herod was so unpopular with his own people, the taxes, this placating Rome, and Herod, not to mention, was also ruthless and paranoid. And you might recall at this moment the gospel account of Matthew, where Herod killed, had every child under the age of two killed when the Magi notified him that they'd come all this way to worship the newborn king. So, anyway, if they didn't keep the peace, Rome would march in and destroy everything. And all of this background, um, information helps us to understand some of what was happening during holy week why everyone and when i say everyone i mean everyone who had a position of authority or power or had a great uh, status quo situation going on why they were so on edge about jesus and why his entry into the city and all the people clamoring for him was so dangerous And it is also why the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, came to Jerusalem uh, this time, during the Passover, because Passover was a particularly problematic holiday for the puppet king and for Rome. Why? Because Passover celebrated God's miraculous liberation of his people from a hated, Oppressive government. So while Jesus arrives, where's the east? Is that east? As while well, Jesus arrives, thank you, east, he comes from the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is where Zechariah prophesied the Messiah would come. He comes down, oh, and mountains are the place where God meets his prophets. He comes down the mountain riding a donkey into Jerusalem from the gates in the east. Pontius Pilate has arrived already. He's come from the west, from Caesarea, a city that Herod built, a beautiful modern city to honor Caesar Augustus. He comes in riding a war horse with hundreds of armed Roman soldiers because everyone's worried about what might happen uh, at Passover, two very different entries into Jerusalem and now i 'm going to go back a little bit and tell us remind us of all remind us all of something that happened about a week before the triumphal entry. It was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and why that created such a problem for the 40s and ultimately a huge problem for Jesus. So here's what John says. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, that's the sister of Lazarus, and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So John is showing us two things. Jesus is willing to lay down his life for his friend Lazarus, and that Jesus truly was a threat to the existence of Israel and all who lived in it, a perceived threat, I should say. A few days later, Jesus returned to Bethany to stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And now this is six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint, about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Who was later to betray him objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The gospel writer John is not very fond of Judas. (laughs) Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So now it turns out one man dying is not enough. Two men have to die. In the minds of the chief priests, this decision that they're making to kill Jesus is to protect the people, it's to preserve the temple. And therefore, Jesus and Lazarus have to be sacrificed. And it shows us how easily, in a broken and a corrupt world, even the best intentions can lead to unthinkable consequences. In the name of protecting life, of protecting the status quo, they were willing to kill the one who resurrected Lazarus and to kill the one who was the evidence of the resurrected life. I don't think for a minute that Caiaphas and all the others were inherently evil, that they took these positions so that one day they could have someone killed. But fear and anxiety and prejudice exist in each of us. And sin, or evil, if you prefer, is a true force in this world. And we've seen over and over again that it can twist good intentions into evil acts or allow us to fool ourselves into thinking an evil act is a good act. Well, in the text we just read, I may, I'm sure you noticed uh, that Mary, when she anointed Jesus' feet, she wasn't concerned about what's the proper role for uh, the lady of the house. She's not, she didn't take any... Um, she wasn't worried about appearing in a servant's role, wasn't worried about letting her hair down, wasn't worried about spending a huge sum of money on the oil that she purchased. And Jesus recognized that she was expressing her love and her devotion for him, and she's not holding anything back. And he accepts this gift of love. He doesn't refuse it. And he even defends her, and he links this costly gift and the way she poured it out on his feet, he links it to his upcoming death and burial. He reminds everyone in the room that the oil was intended for his burial. She used it then. He wants to show her love and devotion now, and he accepts it. And maybe Jesus is telling us something about what it means to both give and receive love. So now we come to the triumphal entry. I'm not going to do the whole deal because Wayne did such a great job a few weeks ago. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. And the result of that leads to, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, "See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him." Well, things are unfolding in a way the religious leaders could not have predicted, and discover that they just cannot control, and they are right to be alarmed. Pilate didn't get this kind of spontaneous acclaim when he entered. He got carefully choreographed mandatory acclaim. And Jesus is creating a potentially potentially very dangerous situation. And not beside the point, he has been undercutting for the last three years the version of Judaism that the Pharisees have worked to protect. But their greater worry the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, their greater worry is that they think that Jesus is threatening the religious freedom of the people and the political sovereignty that the people have in this deal that they've made with Rome, the deal that protects everyone. And you know they're right, because 40 years later, there was a revolt, and Rome came in and crushed the area, and in the city of Jerusalem, oh, by the way, the revolt happened at the Passover time, 40 years later, Rome came in, destroyed everything, 1.1 million people in the city were killed during a five-month siege. So these religious leaders have a real worry about what could happen. John's Gospel then moves from the anointing by Mary to the triumphal entry to Jesus addressing crowds during the week, predicting his death, and then it moves to the Passover meal in the upper room. And John's Gospel devotes quite a few verses to the upper room where Jesus and his disciples had the Passover meal. In fact, he talks talks more about what happened in that room that night than the other Gospels do, but he has one omission. He doesn't talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper like the other Gospels do, where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me. Instead, John tells us a story that the other Gospels don't have, and here it is. you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I think in a a way we should hear the echo of Mary anointing Jesus' feet And now see Jesus anointing his disciples' feet. Mary demonstrated her love for him. He is demonstrating his love for them. So here Jesus is demonstrating both his love and exactly what kind of Messiah he is. I'm not sure what position a famous rabbi who recently entered the city surrounded by cheering and adoring crowds What kind of position that rabbi should take at the Passover meal? I'm guessing the most comfortable couch to lie on and the place at the table where all his wise words could be heard by everyone. But I do know for certain that standing up and disrobing to your skivvies, taking the towel that the lowliest servant carrying and wearing that, kneeling on the ground, and then washing the feet of the guests is not what celebrated rabbis do at the Passover meal. Twelve disciples, twelve pairs of feet, stunned silence until he comes to Peter's feet. Peter had a few minutes to think about what he might say, and he still managed to blow it. You shall never wash my feet. Peter is very fond of absolutes. Never. Peter is refusing this gift from Jesus. And then when Peter, and then Jesus tells Peter that this must happen, Peter switches. Okay, wash all of me head to toe. And Jesus lovingly and carefully washes Peter's feet. Peter, who will soon deny him, say that he does not know Jesus not once not twice but three times and also in that group of 12 getting his feet washed was Judas Judas that very night is going to betray Jesus Jesus washes Judas's feet as lovingly and carefully as he washed washed all the others feet John's gospel begins with this very interesting story of Jesus turning water into wine. And here we see Jesus turning water into love. I wonder if for the rest of their lives, the disciples could ever see a servant's basin of water, a towel, or even their own feet without thinking of this moment, Jesus at their feet looking up at them. When Jesus finished washing their feet, he took off the towel, put his clothes back on, they ate the meal, and during the evening, Judas left to let the authorities know where Jesus would be next. In John's gospel, Jesus, on the last night of his life, the last time he'll be with the disciples as this group, he pours his heart into them. John's gospel in these last chapters is filled with Jesus' words to his disciples. Five whole chapters in John's gospel after this moment, before he's arrested, are filled with Jesus' words to his disciples. Telling, he's He's just pouring every last thing he has into them before he's gone. He tells them he'll be betrayed, which he's been telling them for a long time, that he'll die, and then he comforts them. He spends so much time comforting them, letting them know all the ways this is going to be okay, that their grief will turn to joy. He will send a comforter. They will see him again, and he prays for them, and he also gives them a command to love as he loves. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. To love as Jesus loves could he have given them anything more difficult to do? Anything more difficult for us to do? Love like me, he says. If only being like Jesus was based on studying Scripture and knowing your Bible, maybe I could do it. Maybe I could be like Jesus. If it was only based on passing out cups of cold water, I could do that. Or if it was only based on praying like he taught us, I know the Lord's Prayer. I could do that. Or pointing out hypocrites and episodes of social injustice. Oh, I like doing that. <laughs> Except when it's me I have to point to. Or living simply as Jesus lived, noticing the beauty in the natural world. I'm working on that. Or if it was breaking bread and drinking the wine, remembering him, I do that here twice a month. But love like Jesus loves? If it could be anything other than loving like Jesus, if anything other was the main thing or, the, or what mattered, I'd like to think I'd have done it by now. But, of course, that would mean that I'd miss the whole point entirely. Can we love like Jesus, expecting death? This end-of-life death, sure. But all the little deaths that happen to us along the way, all the things that we inflict on each other, we let each other down, we abandon, we betray, we disown each other. Loving like Jesus means that these things happen to us, and loving anyway. How are we to do this thing to love like Jesus? Well, John's gospel's given us some hints. We love when we have received love. It's the love we've received from God, our belovedness in God's eyes that spills over into loving others. And it's this this community of faith. It's a training ground where we practice serving one another, forgiving one another, repenting, bearing with one another, and bearing one another. Here we practice patience, generosity, and humility. This is the training ground for loving the whole world, to bring to the world the kingdom values of justice, reconciliation, peace, hope, grace, to bring shalom, to bring love. When Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, that's what he's asking. Receive love and then respond in love. Andrew, come on up. I'm going to pray. Lord, I... I confess I was in turmoil preparing this message because it's so glaringly obvious to me that I do not love like Jesus. My question is, how can I love like you in this world? Lord, teach us. Lord, help us to learn from each other. Help us to receive love and respond in love. Teach us to love others as you have, Spirit of God, walk with us as we learn to love in this world. Amen. Thank you, Catherine. Um, Quick side.